Well, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And while you're doing that, you know, Paul, uh, uh, Brad often refers to the everlasting song. And he notices that there is no such thing as the everlasting sermon. But I will remind you that the everlasting song takes place in heaven. So um, when we get there, we can sing that one for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> All right, well, let's not have this discussion. Second Thessalonians <laughs> chapter 2, page 1172 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you want to grab that to follow along. This morning, we're going to continue our study in Second Thessalonians entitled, While We Wait. And you may remember from last week as we began this series that there are three things that we know to be true about this church at the city of Thessalonica that, that Paul is writing this letter to. There's three things that, that we can say about this church. First, we know that it was a good church. And by that I mean it was a spiritually healthy church. They had a very strong faith through this time of persecution that they were enduring. And, and they had a deep love for one another. The second thing that we know is that this church is undergoing some pretty severe persecution. They lived in a very tough time, in a very tough place, and they were being persecuted because of their faith. And finally, you might remember that this is a church that had a, a real interest in the end times, in the events of the end times, in the, the day of the Lord. And so when Paul writes to them, both in his first and second letter, he addresses this subject, this topic of the end times, what it will be like, what's going on, and how things will unfold. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to Him. Now, what is that kind of an image of? It's an image of the, the rapture of the church, being gathered together with Christ. So concerning this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction." He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is, is uh, called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Don't miss that. I'm not really going to hit on this in my sermon, but don't miss that. Anybody who perishes, anybody who fails to, to, to experience the favor of God and eternal life is because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. God confirms that, that turning away from the truth. Look at in verse 11. He seals them that. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie 
and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we thank you that you not only tell us about how we live our, our lives here and now, but Father, you give us a hope in your coming. And I pray that you would open our eyes to that reality this morning as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm a stickler for getting places on time. I don't like to make people wait for me, and I don't like to wait for other people when, when I have an appointment. It's just, it's just one of my pet peeves, and I feel like when that happens, that, 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 that I waste somebody's time when I'm not there on time. And I, and I have been late to meetings. If, if, you know, if you're a part of this church and you're involved in any committees, you know that's happened from time to time, right? And, and I've missed meetings sometimes because I failed to put it in my phone or write it on my calendar, and, and sometimes I'll slip and I'll miss one. And, and, and when that happens, I, I feel like, wow, I've just wasted their time. It's one of my things, right? Being places on time. But the reality is that sometimes we run late, and sometimes people that we're supposed to meet for this or that or the other thing run late as well. Sometimes a doctor doesn't get you in for your appointment right when you had your appointment time, right? Right? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's like 45 minutes later, right? And you end up waiting for a while. Sometimes that person you were supposed to meet for lunch got stuck in traffic or something happens at the office. They weren't able to leave right when they were supposed to and you end up waiting at the, 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 the restaurant. It's, it's just a reality, right? It's a reality. And so because that's a reality and because I really don't like to wait with nothing to do, I prepare for the possibility that I might have to wait when I'm going to meet somebody. I know in advance what a, how I'm going to spend my time while I'm waiting for somebody to show up or while I'm waiting for the doctor to call me back. I know what I'm going to do. And it usually involves this. This is my Kindle. And nowadays, just about everything that I read is on this Kindle. It can hold thousands of books. And so whether it's pleasure reading or whether it's reading for, for school or, or reading a book that's related to ministry, I've got it on my Kindle and so if I end up waiting, it's okay. I've got it covered, right? I'm not going to be bored. My time is not going to be uh, wasted because I've got something productive I can do. Now, here's where I'm going with this. As Christians, we're kind of in the waiting room of history, are we not? I mean, think about it for a moment. Jesus came to this earth. He was born. He lived for 33 years. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And on that day that He ascended into heaven, as His disciples stood there with their mouths hanging open, looking up into the sky as He ascended into heaven, two angels appeared. And they said this, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday He will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. That was 2,000 years ago. And someday hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting. So here's the question. Do you know what to do while you wait for the return of Christ? Do you have a plan? Beyond just trying to get from you know day to day to day and surviving, do you have a plan? And when I say do you have a plan, I don't mean do you have a plan to keep from getting bored like when you're waiting at the restaurant for somebody to show up. What I mean is do you have a plan to deal with life in light of the fact that he has not yet returned? Do you have a plan? See, the Thessalonian believers didn't have a plan. I think they thought it was going to be like soon. I think the Apostle Paul probably thought it was going to be soon because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. They didn't know. 
right? They, they just assumed that it was going to be soon. So they didn't have a plan to wait. And it caused the Thessalonian believers a great deal of distress. But Paul showed them, and he shows us what to do while we are waiting for the return of Jesus. He gives them three things to do, and there's three things that we need to do as well. And the first one is this. Watch out for false teachers. While we wait, watch out for false teachers. In this in-between time, while we're waiting for the return of Christ, keep a, a watchful eye out for those who would teach false doctrine. And in, in the context of this passage, particularly those who would teach false doctrine regarding the return of Christ surrounding the day of the Lord. You see, Paul had a problem. Every time he would leave a city that he had gone to and he had shared the gospel and people responded in faith in Christ and he taught them the truth and discipled them, every time he left a city like that, these false teachers would come in behind him and they would try to lead the people astray with false doctrine. In Thessalonica, false teachers came and, and, and taught the people that the day of the Lord had come and that they were living through the judgment of the day of the Lord, what we call the tribulation. And these false teachers told them that this is it. You're in the day of the Lord. Well, Paul had taught them that no, you're going to be spared from that time. In some cases, these, these false teachers, they came in person. And, and they came and they said, they, according to what Paul wrote here, that they had some sort of prophecy uh, that contradicted what Paul had said. Sometimes it appeared that they would write the, the le a letter to the, to the church at Thessalonica and sign it, the Apostle Paul, but it would be contradicting what Paul had taught them. And so Paul writes them a letter to remind them of the truth. And Paul raises the issue that they're struggling with here in verse 2. He says, don't believe these false teachers who are, quote, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, what does that term refer to? Let's just pause here for a minute, make sure we're on the same page. When it talks about the day of the Lord, what is that referring to? Well, it's kind of referring to all of the events of the end times, from the rapture of the church to the seven years of tribulation to the return of Christ. It's the consummation of God's plan for history. It's where everything is heading in terms of history by God's plan. But let me tell you that there is a strong emphasis in both the Old Testament and the New Testament on the judgment that is associated with the day of the Lord. And so when people hear this term, the day of the Lord, if they know the Old Testament at all, what they hear is a time of judgment. And not just a time of judgment, but a time of severe judgment. Look at what Jesus said about this day in Matthew chapter 24. He talks about it. I put it in your notes. He says, for then there will be great distress. Some translations say a great tribulation. It's where we get the word tribulation. Unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. That's pretty severe. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So when you talk about the day of the Lord, what comes to mind is the judgment of that time. But here's the good news. Those who are believers... In the Lord Jesus Christ, when the day of the Lord commences, in other words, when those events begin to unfold, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will be spared that time of great distress. I believe that's what Paul taught the Thessalonian believers. You're going to be spared from this time of judgment by God. And here's why I believe that. There are two reasons. First, the Thessalonian believers were distressed because they thought the day of the Lord had already begun. That was the whole issue. 
They're freaking out. They're going, Paul, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. You said no, this, this wouldn't be the case. And now, now these other teachers are coming saying they have a prophecy from God saying that this is the judgment of the day of the Lord. See, that only makes sense if they thought that they would be spared that time, that they would be gathered to the Lord beforehand. Apparently, these false teachers were telling them that the persecution that they were facing was, in fact, the judgment of the day of the Lord. But there's another reason I believe that Paul uh, taught them that, and that's because of what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You're in 2 Thessalonians 2. Go back maybe a page, maybe two pages, just preceding this, and look at 2 Thess- uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and following. Sec- uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is his first letter to these Christians, and as I said, he addressed this very same issue. Look at what he says. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who, uh, who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. In other words, those who are dead. Believers in Christ. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And what's he talking about there? He's talking about the rapture of the church. There's that, that, that picture again of being caught up together, being gathered with the Lord in the air. But then look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it's going to not be announced. It's going to be quick. It's going to be unexpected. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Then jump down to verse 80. But since you belong to the day, in other words, since you are awake and you're aware of what's going on, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now look at verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died so we would not suffer wrath. What's he talking about there? Well, certainly as Christians, we know that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will not suffer the wrath of eternal punishment, of condemnation of hell. We understand that. But I don't think that that's what Paul is referring to here. Look at the context. Remember, when you study the Bible, the context is key. You can't take a verse out of the context and try to understand what it means. You've got to put it in the context. And from chapter 4, verse 13, all the way down to chapter 5, verse 11, Paul is talking about the coming of the Lord. When he gathers the church to himself, that time when destruction will come upon people suddenly, and he says, because of the death of Christ, you will be spared that wrath. I think what he's saying is that God is going to save you from the wrath. That's what he's teaching them. And so Paul corrects the false teachers and he reminds these Thessalonian believers of the truth. And in doing so, he reminds us of the importance of watching out for false teachers. And that's the point I want to make here. He's he's reminding us of the need to, to keep our eyes open for false teaching and false doctrine. But that assumes something, doesn't it? 
It assumes that we care about the return of Christ. It assumes that we're living with a sense of anticipation for His return. The reason that this was so distressing to the Thessalonian believers was because this subject of the return of Christ was so vital to their faith. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, and he's writing to his friend Timothy, talks about those who long for the appearing of Christ. And we sang about it this morning. Do you long for His appearing? As I said last week, it's kind of easy for us sometimes in this particular time and place in history for us to become cozy in this world. And to develop this sense of spiritual nearsightedness where we, we really can't see beyond the here and now. That everything is about the here and now, and that, and that we don't see the long-term vision of what God is doing in this world. We should long for His appearing. It should be a subject that we are deeply interested in, and that we want to know more about. But listen, we shouldn't get caught up in what every prophecy teacher says about the end times. There's a lot of nonsense being taught out there. It's being passed off as biblical teaching. We need to test what people say against the Word of God. Not against one verse here or there, but against all of the Word of God, the whole council. In every generation, there are those who make false claims about the coming of Christ. We saw that a couple of years ago here. Remember back in 2011? Remember all the hoopla about picking a date and when he was going to return? And how many Christians bought into that? And when it didn't happen, how many of them had their faith damaged? And how much did that damage the testimony of the gospel? Because it was presented as biblical truth. We've got to be able to recognize the real thing. When Linda and I were in college and we were dating, one summer she decided she was going to be a summer missionary in Oregon. And so she spent the entire summer 3,000 miles away in Oregon. And I remember when she returned from that that period of time that she was gone and I had gone to the airport uh, to pick her up at the airport and I was standing there by the gate where uh, the passengers were going to be disembarking off the plane. This is pre 9-11 where you could go to the gate without a ticket. You remember those days? Right? And I was standing there by the gate and, and, and those doors open and, and the sea of passengers begins to, to disembark from the plane and to fill that, that, that ticketing area right there. And somehow in that sea of passengers as they were coming off, Linda managed to come through the doors and basically stand right in front of me without me noticing her. I mean, she was just like right there and I'm just like sitting there waiting for her, waiting for her. And she's sitting there looking at me like, hello. Now, in my defense, it had been 10 weeks. And her hair had grown longer, and I think she changed the style, maybe got bangs or something, right? And so it threw me off a little bit. But here's the point. As we wait for the approaching of the day of the Lord, we've got to be able to spot the real thing in the sea of exaggerated and false claims out there. We've got to be able to recognize the truth. Watch out for false teachers. It's the first thing we need to do as we wait, because listen, they're out there. And they're going to lead us astray if we're not careful. Not just with regards to the coming of Christ. Certainly that is true. But with regard to the truth of God in general. Here's the second thing we need to do as we wait. And that is this. Remember that God has a plan. Remember that God has a plan. You know, this delay in Christ's return is not really a delay at all. It's nothing like that friend who shows up 30 minutes late for a lunch appointment. 
Everything that God does, He does just at the right time. And we saw that in the passage we read this morning. It talks about the proper time. But look at a couple of other verses I put in your note. Galatians 4.4 But when the right time comes, or came, when the right time came, God sent His Son. Ephesians chapter 1 God has now revealed to us His mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill His own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Now, we don't know the timing of God's plan, do we? The Bible makes that clear, that no man knows the day or the hour. But listen, we can see kind of a rough outline of God's plan as it unfolds that Paul gives us here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He, he, he says in verse 3, he talks about an event. He calls it the rebellion in which the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, who is that? Who's the man of lawlessness? It's the Antichrist, right? And the nature of this rebellion that he, do, he talks about is described in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says he, talking about this man of lawlessness, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So here's a major event in God's plan for the future in the day of the Lord. The Antichrist will set himself up as God to be worshipped in the temple. And Paul says that this judgment of the great tribulation on the day of the Lord will not take place until after that event. Do you understand what he's saying? This, this, this time of judgment, this severe judgment that Jesus talked about, that's unlike any other time in history, will not take place until this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, sets himself up in the temple. And hey, the temple haven't even been rebuilt yet. Right? So he sets himself up in the temple and proclaims himself to be God. Jesus spoke about this event. We saw the last part of what Jesus said in verse 21, but let's back up in Matthew 24 there and look at what he said earlier. It's in your notes. So when you see, this is Jesus speaking, so when you see standing in the holy place, that is the temple, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the desecration of the temple when the Antichrist sets himself up as God. It says, when you see that, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. This is why Paul could assure the Thessalonian believers that they had not somehow missed the rapture and that they were not somehow in the time of judgment of the great tribulation because this event, this abomination that causes desolation had not yet taken place. So Paul then goes on to talk about what will happen before that event and what will happen after that event in God's plan. Look in verses 5 and 6. He says that the power of lawlessness is already at work in the world. This is the power of Satan that will energize the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the man of lawlessness, but he says the power of lawlessness is already at work in the world. He's talking about Satan. And while Satan is active in the world, and while satanic power is active in the world, Satan is being restrained at the present time. This is what Paul says here. He is being held back. You see, Satan is ready and willing to enact his plan at any time. It's only because he's being restrained that he has not done more in this world than he has already done. Listen, I believe in every generation, Satan has an antichrist. 
Because he doesn't know the time. I think that's what Paul is indicating here. When he says the spirit of lawlessness, it's already at work in the world. I think in every generation he has an antichrist, someone controlled by his evil power, ready to lead the world on his behalf. In every generation, he is ready to establish his global power that will serve his selfish and evil purposes. He's ready, but he's being held back. His plans are being frustrated, and they will continue to be frustrated until God removes that which is restraining him. Look at verse 7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Notice the personal pronoun there used with regard to that which is restraining Satan. It says until he is taken out of the way. It doesn't say until it is taken out of the way. Many scholars that believe that this refers to the Holy Spirit, and I think they're right, because who else can restrain the power of Satan? So when the Holy Spirit is removed, and as Satan is allowed to have his way, then the Antichrist will come on the scene and begin his work, and this is all a part of God's plan. By the way, this is a reason that many people believe that the rapture of the church will happen prior to the tribulation when the Antichrist is active. Because what is the church? It's not this building. The church is the people of God filled by the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God is removed from this world, if He's removed from the equation so that Satan's power can reign on this earth for a short while... It makes sense that the church will be removed at the same time because we cannot function apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that the Holy Spirit and the church will be removed and then the lawless one will be revealed. He will set himself up as God in the temple. These are the two events, two major events in God's plan for the end times. But there is one more event that Paul shows us here in verse 8. And that is that the lawless one will be overthrown and destroyed by Jesus at his coming. And notice how he is overthrown. This was brought out in our Wednesday night Bible studies. We're studying First Peter. Notice how he's overthrown. He says, by the breath coming out of Jesus' mouth. Some big battle, huh? You know, Satan's there, he's ready, he's ready to go, and Jesus comes, and it says, by the breath of his mouth, and by the splendor of his coming. In other words, just by the very presence of Christ in his glory, boom, Satan is defeated. Boom, boom, that's it. <laughs> he doesn't break a sweat. In other words, God wins just as he had planned. You know, kingdoms come and go, tyrants rise and fall, wars are fought, Treaties are made, elections are held, disasters befall us, blessings enrich us, we live, we die, and nothing much seems to change in this world. But through it all, God is moving history by His sovereign power to His desired goal at His appointed time. God has a plan. And while we sit in the waiting room of history, it serves us well to remember that. Finally, number three, as you wait, Take Satan seriously. Paul tells us in verse 9 that the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. And in verse 10, he tells us how Satan works, and it is through deception. This has always, always, always been Satan's game plan. From the Garden of Eden to the final days, 
His game plan is to use deception. And in those final days, vast numbers of the world's population will be easy prey for Satan's deception because Paul tells us here they have turned away from the truth. Listen, if you turn away from the truth, if you do not love the truth as he says here, then you become an easy prey for deception. We can certainly see our culture moving away from the truth, can we not? And not just away from the truth, but from away, away from the concept of truth itself. Millard Erickson, who is a theologian in his book entitled Introducing Christian Doctrine, said this, The postmodern way to find meaning is to place one's life in the context of community, either real or imaginary. Truth in this context is what is good or useful for us to believe. So truth is not what is true, not what is actual, not what is real, but what's useful, what helps you out, then you can count that as truth. This will undoubtedly make it easier for Satan to do his work in the final days. But it isn't just the final days where Satan is a threat. Notice that Paul says that what will happen in those final days, that deception is in accordance with how Satan operates. In other words, how he operates now. How he has operated all throughout history and how he operates right now. Satan is alive. He is well. He is active right now. He may be restrained in terms of his global ambitions, but he is not passive. Jesus called him the God of this world. Paul said that we are to stand firm against the devil's schemes by putting on the armor of God. Peter said, watch out for your enemy because he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We can no more live the Christian life ignoring the danger of Satan than we can live the Christian life ignoring the hope of the return of Christ. Both of them impact the way we live our lives. If we fail to take Satan seriously, and especially in terms of his ability to deceive us, then we will endanger ourselves. We will find ourselves succumbing to temptation, embracing foolishness, excusing what God condemns, following instead of leading our hearts and convincing ourselves that God is okay with all of it. We will be fruitless, powerless, anemic Christians. Satan will have his way with this world one day for a short while according to God's plan. But Satan need never have his way in your life. So what do we do with all this? How do we respond to everything that we've just heard Paul say in this passage? Let me give you three points of application that you can walk out of here with this morning. First, study the Word. It's very hard to be led astray in deception if you know the truth. I want to get somebody who's either in Awana or who's been in Awana, who knows the Awana theme verse, 2 Timothy 2.15, just to stand, I need a raised hand here so I can pick somebody, just to stand up where you are and to quote 2 Timothy 2.15. Any Awana kids want to do that? Come on, you do it for Commander Mike all the time. Oh, you're leaving me hanging here. All right, it says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Am I right, Awana kids? Was that close? You at least going to confirm it? Yes? Okay, good. Thank you. Rightly dividing the word of truth. What does that mean? It means to rightly handle or to rightly understand the word of truth. We need to study the word if we're going to understand the word. 
I'm excited about an initiative this fall that we're going to be a part of that's going to help us to know God's Word better so that we can rightly handle and rightly understand it. You're going to hear more about it. It's called The Story. You're going to hear more about it in several weeks. Keep your, your ears open for that. Second, not only do we need to study the Word, but second, you need to trust God. Trust God. Why? Because He's got a plan. He's in control. And not only is He in control of the sweeping movements of history, but He's in control of the minute details of your life as well. Jesus said that the same God who oversees the universe is concerned about and is aware of the needs of even the little sparrows. So how much more is He going to be aware of the needs in your life? Now there will be times when you can't make heads or tails of what's going on either in terms of the world or in terms of your own personal life. But when you can't figure it out, remember that He can. He's got a plan, and He's working out everything in accordance with His will. So you need to study the Word. You need to trust God. And number three, be alert. Be alert. We can't live our lives, our Christian lives, with our heads in the proverbial sand We have to understand who our enemy is. We don't need to be preoccupied with him. We don't need to become Satan conscious and Satan focused. But we do need to understand that he means to harm us. We need to understand and be cognizant of his ways and familiar with his voice so that we can strategically resist his influence in our lives. I've been talking all morning about what we need to do while we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I have not mentioned the most important thing, have I? The most important thing is that we have a right relationship with God. Because let me tell you something, I don't know when Christ is going to return. The Bible gives us this indication that it's imminent. It could be any time that he could return for his church. But I do know this. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So either Christ is going to return for those who belong to him or every one of us is going to die. And in either case, it is vital that you are in a right relationship with God. And you can only enter into a right relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would love to talk to you more about what that means and how you can respond to Him and how you can understand what He has done for you and that it is a free gift offered to you. Listen, if you want to talk to me more about that, here's how we can make that happen. There's several ways. Number one, you could take that communication card that's in your bulletin. You could fill out your name and your phone number and make sure there's an email or some way for me to contact you. Check that box. I want to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian. I will get it. Drop it in the offering plate or in that little white box or the one like it in the back. I'll get it and I'll call you. We'll set up a time we can talk. I'll answer whatever questions I can and I'll show you what the Bible says about how you can have a right relationship with God. You can come down, if you would like, this morning during the time of invitation. It's one of the reasons we extend it every week. It's for you to have an opportunity to come down and to talk to me right now and say, listen, I want to talk about that right now. Or I'm ready to do that. Or this week I put my faith in Christ and I want to let you know. Or you can catch me after the service. I'm always here and just say, hey, listen, can we step aside here for a minute? I want to talk about this thing, about a right relationship with God. You can call me at the office. You can email me. Here's what I'm saying. Let me know. 
I don't have any power over, you know, in terms of your salvation, but what I have is this, the authority of the Word of God. And I would be more than happy to open this and to show you what God has done for you. Maybe as we come to our time of invitation, there's something else that's going on and, and you need to respond. Again, you could take the, that card and you could fill it out and check one of those boxes. You can see there's a number of choices there. You say, I want to talk to you about, just check one and let me know and I'll get with you. Maybe, maybe you, you have a decision to make this morning about, about baptism. You've put your faith in Christ. You know that you have a right relationship with God, but you need to follow through in that, that step of obedience that we call believer's baptism. Maybe you have a decision to make about joining our church or something else. This morning, if you, if you have a decision to make, come on down or fill out that card and let me know. Would you do that? Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, um, the glimpse you give us into the future, the, the glimpse of your plan. Lord, we know you don't give us all the details. We don't need all the details. We don't need to approve of what you're doing and to dissect it. But Father, we do need hope. And that's what you give us. And we thank you for it. Father, we're in this waiting room of history, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that in that time, you would help us, Father, to, to live out the plan that you've given us in your word. Father, I pray that we'd be so aware of false teachers, Lord, that we would just be aware of your truth and aware of, of, of those that would try to lead us astray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to keep alert, to know that we have an enemy and that he means us harm. Father, I pray that you'd help us to live with the awareness that everything that is happening is happening because you have planned it and that you are moving history and even our lives to your desired end. Lord, give us that certainty and help us to live with that hope. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning that has never come into that right relationship with you through faith in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would lead them this morning as only you can through your Holy Spirit to the Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.